Lindquist, our missions pastor, is going to be teaching tonight. But before he does, we're going to show you a little video um, for an awesome thing that we're doing in support of a missionary um, overseas. So check this video out. Hey Godspeak, this is Pastor James here. I'm here to talk to you guys about something cool that's in the work. The vision at Godspeak is always tip of the spear. Today we're here to talk about a ministry that's going on in the ends of the earth that's near and dear to my heart. And similarly, even more so on Pastor Craig's heart, which is out of Uganda um, specifically. And, and we come from different backgrounds and different places of being part of two different ministries that are happening currently in Uganda still. And we have a really unique opportunity to bridge the gap between three different ministries in Kampala, Uganda, underneath God Cares Ministry. Um, my parents took it over in 2007. The ministry itself, uh, the nonprofit here stateside, started in 1999. And then the first child was sponsored in 2002, where we broke ground. We have kids not only going to school, but also living at the same time. So there's dormitories, and there's soccer fields, and there's basketball courts, and there's auditorium. We're serving about 800 kids in our high school alone, but as a whole, we're around 1,800 kids total. So as we're looking Looking to partner with Craig and also Pastor Fred, who has been working with our ministry for the past, I think, five years, where there's been a partnership between Pastor Fred and also God Cares. And they're all working as a partnership to get these kids to have an education where they wouldn't normally have the opportunity to have the education. We've opened up trade schools and we're getting kids into universities, and they're the future leaders of this country that are going to make an impact for the gospel for generations to come. And to see what God is doing through the three ministries coming together is not something that is easily achievable, but through God, anything's possible. And we're really excited about what the Lord is doing. God gave us a verse when we first started the ministry, Isaiah chapter 58, verses 10 through 12. That verse says, those from among you will build the waste places. But what's really cool is to see all those young people that we did invest a lot in with training and education and even university education. And throughout it, we see that they have held on to their faith and they're doing ministry. They're reaching out to their community and investing in these young people's lives. It makes a difference. This is a massive help for them. So we have 21 students that we need to sponsor for their education. We have dormitories, so we need to pay for their education and we need to pay for their daily expenses, which is food, clothing, water. We're asking for $40 per student. Um, what you get with that is you get the opportunity to follow this child's life. You get to watch their educational growth. For those of you guys that feel that call to missions, to give you the opportunity to actually make that next step and go to Uganda and go to these places as definitely Pastor Craig's heart is for you guys to be able to step out of your comfort zone and we want you guys to be part of these ministries on the ground floor. So if the Lord is impressing on your heart to engage and also uh, financially support these children, we'd be immensely blessed, but we're really excited about what the Lord is doing, not only here at Godspeak in, in America, but what he's doing around the world through this little church in Newberry Park. We're inviting you guys to, to take that next step, to stand in the gap and financially support this ministry. It's always fun to see how God brings different ministries and people together to further his kingdom, and I see that happening here. God bless you. Watching myself on video, I see I'm limping a lot. I'm trying not to. <laughs> um, so anyway, that's a kind of what we're bringing out, this is brand new, a sponsorship program that handles the kids from these three ministries, and we don't have the information out there today, but tomorrow, um, Bayumba will have a table, and there are 21 kids that need to be sponsored in two ways, one for their uh, education and one for their accommodation. So it ends up being 42 sponsorships we're looking for um, to handle these kids. And it's, it's really exciting uh, how God is using Pastor Fred, who I've known since way back in the early 2000s. I'm actually the one who introduced him to Pastor Rob. Then Rob dumped me and took on Pastor Fred. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> No, but that special relationship that Rob had with uh, Pastor Fred and, and uh, we were uh, 
Pastor Fred was on our board of our church when we were there, and now he has since taken over the, the church that I planted and is doing a great job of taking the church through some difficult times, and I'll, I'm going to be sharing a bit about that in my message. But anyway, all that to say, um, it's really cool to see God um, using this church around the world. And we have a missions board out there. Um, you can see the different places and countries that God is using God speak. And uh, I just encourage you to pray for these missionaries, pray for these efforts. God's doing a good work. Amen? Well, it is a pleasure uh, to be able to speak to you again. Um, I guess I'll just, I don't have a clicker up here, right? So I'll just have you change it for me? Okay. Um, I was praying about what to share uh, this evening, and I was just looking at the anchored reading and saw that we are in the midst of the book of Job. I've been reading through the book of Job, and um, you can go to the next slide there, yep, and uh, you might, I was thinking, well, maybe some of the other pastors might not tackle it because there's so many other passages to tackle, but there was a message in the book of Job that was really speaking to me, and the question is, why? And that's the great question that the book of Job really enlightens us on. Why? Why do bad things happen? Why do evil things, seemingly meaningless things, happen to people, to us? Even as we are living in a way that we think is rightly before God. I believe that we all come to that place where we're asking that question, God, why did you allow this to happen in my life. Last year was one of those years for me. It was a, I could say it was interesting, it was hard. And I think you probably saw it, maybe you didn't know about it, but as you know, I went through seven different surgeries on various parts of my body and I literally felt like my body was falling apart. Pastor Don, who is kind of a spiritual father to me, said, Craig, you're being raptured one piece at a time. (laughs) (laughs) But even as that was going on, and that was kind of discouraging, um, the ministry, at the same time, the ministry that my wife and I poured the greatest and best years of our life into in Uganda was also going through a very hard time, seemingly falling apart in many ways. And the very man that I had chosen and put in place to replace me, who I was sure was God's man for the job, seemingly turned 180 degrees and seemed bent on doing the exact opposite of what we put him there for, what God called him to put him him there for. And it seemed like he was bent on not building the church, but destroying the church. And um, the stress that I felt, the responsibility that I felt towards the people who were being wronged, the feeling of not only being betrayed, but also being ashamed of letting um, people that I loved down. There have been few times in my life where I have been more down, I can say. And there were many times in the course of last year where I was asking God that question, why? And you know, we've all had those moments before. I remember when I was 16 years old, growing up on the mission field. My dad was a missionary, been there all of his life, and he was tragically taken in a truck accident. And I remember asking God, why? Why would you take a man, 42 years of age, serving you all your life? Why would you take him away when he's, there's obviously so much fruit in his life. Why would, you, why would you take him away in the prime of his life? I remember being there with my son, Nathaniel. He was 
I think about eight. Watching him, he had at that time, he had malaria and typhoid and appendicitis all at once. And we were looking at him, helpless, watching him in pain, for sure, sure that he was going to die because, you know, hospitals and doctors are rare. And to get to them is difficult. And to find remedy is sometimes not possible. And I remember asking God, why? Why are you doing this to us? And I know that I'm not alone. I know that you are out there and you've asked yourself that same question. I know because I'm up here almost every week as a pastor and I hear your prayer requests. We read the prayer requests that you write on the bulletin. And I encourage you to do that. When you have a prayer request, write it down, put it in the agape box. We do pray for them. Other people pray for them every Tuesday and Thursday. Those are lifted up in prayer. But we read those. And we know that many of you are struggling with deep issues in your life. Issues that are causing you to be heartbroken. And I'm sure you're asking that question, why? Why do parents die and leave kids as orphans? Why are children abused when they themselves are not culpable? They're not responsible. Why are so many Thousands, millions of unborn babies put to death before they're even born. Why is a son or daughter taken in the prime of their life from an accident or a senseless act of evil that leaves the parents heartbroken and confused? And you know, as I was reading through this book, the book of Job, I I realized that that's one, again, certainly... I knew this before, but that's one of the reasons that God has included the book of Job in the canon of Scripture, to help us get some perspective on ourselves, on our problems, on God, as we face life and we try to answer life's hard questions. So you might be here tonight. You very, may, very well may be dealing with those kinds of issues yourself. You might be asking God why. Certainly Job asked why in every sense of the word. And my prayer is, as, I, as I'm sharing with you tonight, my prayer is, is that the Holy Spirit would somehow use this message to speak to you. Amen. Lord Jesus, we just come before you this evening. I am very grateful for this opportunity to share with my dear brothers and sisters here. Lord, we are thankful that we have a God. And our God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, the God that holds the universe in the palm of his hands. And you are that very God that you invite us to come boldly before that very throne to find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. And so, Lord, through this message, I pray that you would give us help, give us understanding, give us peace in our heart, build our faith as we are struggling in different ways in this life that that you've called us to live. So bless our time. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bible or your apparatus, you can turn to the book of Job, and we're going to be kind of skimming through it. We're kind of taking a, uh, a bird's eye view to kind of get the main message. What is the point of the book of Job? You know, there's no other book like Job in the Bible. It's a gripping and challenging book. It's If you read it, it's one of the most fascinating books of the Old Testament. It actually is a big, a great poem. There's very, most of it is a poem. There's just a few passages that are not. And some have said that it's perhaps the greatest poem in all of literature, surpassing the greats, Shakespeare. Martin Luther said that Job was more magnificent and sublime than any other book. Alfred Lord Tennyson, a poet himself, 
called Job the greatest poem of ancient or modern literature. The book of Job is admired by everyone as one of the most beautiful writings that man has ever known. But it's more than just a beautiful piece of writing. It has a very great message. Now, I don't know about you, but historically in my life, Job was one of those books that when I got to, I always had a little bit of trepidation stepping into it again. You know, you read the first two chapters, you can get through that. That's an interesting story. But then there's 30 chapters, nearly 40 chapters that follow that are a discourse that are sometimes hard to follow and sometimes seem a bit dry. And so it's one of those books that oftentimes we know it's there, but we often don't give it the attention that it really deserves. It has a great message. And I pray that my message this evening will maybe pique your interest to to dive into it more. It is a drama of an individual's life. Um, The book of Job is not only a drama, it's history. Job was an actual living person, and these events actually took place for a purpose. God recounts them for us in this beautiful style so that we might have an answer to that haunting question, why? Why do bad things happen to good people? What, why does apparently senseless tragedy strike men? And this is the subject of this book. It tackles the mystery of human suffering, the problem of pain. Why do all people suffer some? And why do the righteous suffer? In Job, we see a man who is exposed to more catastrophe in one day than any other person except Jesus himself. He experienced an agony of human despair and desolation of spirit, which was accompanied by apparently meaningless and senseless tragedies that came into his life. And why did God allow this? The answer comes as we read through this book. And the answer is an interesting one. The author of the book of Job is most likely Job, although some people say that because it is such an old book, um, it was handed down orally and eventually penned by King Solomon. As to the date, most people believe that Job lived before the time of Abraham, sometime at the end of Genesis chapter 11. Um, So somewhere around 2300 BC is when this uh, prince, Job, lived. There's never a mention of him being a Jew. There's no mention of the law. There's no mention of the Exodus. He was somewhat of a character like Melchizedek. Uh, He was a priest of his family. He lived to be over 200 years old, which kind of ties in with the age of people around Abraham's time. You may not realize it, but Job, the book of Job, has had a massive effect on the English language. Many of the cliches that we speak on a day-to-day basis actually find their origin here in the book of Job, and I'll just read a few of them. Um... In in chapter 4, verse 15, it says, The hair on my body stood up. And that's the origin of the saying, My hair stood on end. Chapter 7, My life is as a breath. Chapter 12, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. Um, Chapter 13, The saying, To put my life in my hands. Chapter 16, we often refer to Job's comforters, and Job says of his comforters that they were miserable comforters. Um, Chapter 19, I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Uh, Chapter 19 refers to the root of the matter. Uh, Chapter 21, put my hand over your mouth. Um, And then it goes on. I, I, I want to just uh, a few more, but there's probably 20 or 20 or 25 of these um, kind of sayings that we have in the English language that find their origin in, in Job. But 
Uh, the saying, repent in dust and ashes, comes in chapter 42. Obviously, we know Handel's Messiah, the song, um, I, which has the words, I know that my Redeemer lives. That finds its place in, in Job chapter 19. And then James 5.11 refers to the patience of Job. And we often refer to someone who has great patience as having the patience of Job. So Job has had a, a big effect on the language that we talk, even though we don't realize it. Elsewhere, we know that the book of Job is authentic. Um, Paul quotes Job 5 in 1 Corinthians 3.19. Ezekiel 14 speaks of Job alongside of both Noah and Daniel. That's found in Ezekiel 14.14. And then, of course, what I referred to, James 5.11 speaks of Job in speaking about the patience that Job had. So that's a bit of a background. I want to get into some of the lessons as we go through the book, some of the lessons that we learn from the book of Job. So you can go to the next slide there. The first lesson is that Job was righteous and blameless, and yet he was tested. Now that's pretty obvious. But let's, let's walk through the first eight verses here. It says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was, man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him, and his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 oxen, and it goes on to spell out just the extent of his wealth. He was a, a wealthy man. Verse 4, and his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day. They thought it was their birthday. And would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the three days of fasting had run their course, Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them. For he said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, from walking back and forth on it. Notice verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him, on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So two times in this uh, passage, it refers to the fact that Job was upright and blameless. Now remember, Job was not privileged to have the word, the scriptures as we have them. Um, His knowledge of God was probably... Passed down. Remember, these were the sons of Noah, the sons of Noah's sons. And so knowledge of God came through oral and maybe written tradition of the time, but there was nothing of the law, nothing of the Judaic religion that, that we talk about in the Old Testament yet. But he was righteous. And so as Abraham believed, and it was reckoned to him as righteous, I imagine that Job was also one of those men who believed in God, and it was reckoned to him as righteous. But here, the writer says Job is righteous and blameless, and God says he is righteous and blameless. In fact, more so than any other man. How many people do you know that you would call blameless or righteous and who feared God? You know, maybe we can think of a few, but I know for myself, I know how ugly I am in my own heart. I know my own unrighteousness, and I'm thankful that my righteousness is not based on how good I am, but based upon the righteousness that is imputed, that is given to me by Christ. Amen? But... Nonetheless here, the simple point that I want us to see is though he was more righteous 
than any other person, that God recognized him as righteous, he endured some of the worst testing any man has ever endured. And the simple point that I want to begin with as we go through the book of Job is the obvious point, and that is that righteous people are tested. If you are a Christian, if you are a believer in God, if you are a follower of, of Scripture... If your desire is to honor God in your life, know that you will be tested. And those testings come in different ways, certainly. Um, They can come as a result of consequences of the way choices that we make, sometimes bad choices. They can come as a result of things that God allows to happen in our life. They can also come as a result of Satan himself, and we'll see that. But 1 Peter 4, verse 1 I mean, verse 12 says, Beloved, don't think it strange concerning the fiery trials that come upon you, which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. And you know what, you guys? We know that. We we know that trials are part of Christian life. But it's interesting to me how when we, we say that in our minds, but when they come upon us, all of a sudden we do think, why is this happening to me? Did I do something wrong? Did I make a mistake? Is, God not, is God's hand a blessing not on me? Trials will come, and they will come on people who are walking in absolute... Um, obedience to the Lord. And we just need to recognize that. And sometimes there's not a good answer. Why Why is this happening? It very well may not be something that we've done that we're receiving discipline for. We'll see that as we go through here. Not only was Job being tested, but he was being tested by Satan. We saw the beginning of that interaction. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. Now, there's all kinds of theological questions we might have regarding this, and we could spend a lot of time trying to pull that all apart, but we're going to bypass that. Somehow, there was a discourse between God and Satan, and it was over this man Job. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made him a hedge? Have you not made a hedge around his household and around all he has on every side? Have you blessed, have you not blessed the work of his hands and his possessions, and have they not increased? But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So in this passage, um, good. Um, in this passage, we find God meeting with his angelic creation. And among them is Satan, who is kind of seen striding in, swaggering, bringing condemnation. On God's creation. And in this interaction, which is interesting, Job is brought up. And and God says, have you noticed my righteous servant Job? And Satan doubts, brings condemnation against Job. He's not, he's only righteous because you've blessed him. But if you take everything away, he'll curse you. And so God allows Satan to test Joseph, I mean Job. And we're not really told why. What we know is that while God allows Satan to test Job, God has Satan on a leash. He allows Satan some freedom, but behind the scenes, God is even using that freedom that he's given Satan to bring about a good that we'll see much, much later. We know that God always can use evil for good, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. 
And so even though God is not the author of evil, God can even use evil to bring good. You know, it's interesting that Satan asked for Job. Jesus would say to Peter, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. And the point is here that not only is Job being tested, he's being tested by Satan, and he may test us too. C.H. Spurgeon says, to be left unmolested by Satan is no evidence of blessing. I know Pastor Rob and Pastor Rick have often said, when you're walking in faith, when you're walking in obedience to God, what do you have on your back? A big old target, right? You're a target of the enemy. And Satan is going to come after you. It might very well be that the question you need to ask is, why am I not being tested? If life seems so easy, is there something going on in your own life that you're not trusting God? You're not, you're not a target for the enemy. He doesn't see you as a threat. Not that we should go out searching for it. But we do need to know that Satan is as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And he is looking especially for those who are doing that work for the Lord. Moving on, we see that Job was able to keep the right perspective through what he was about to go through. And from chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 2, verse 10, we see that one by one, the props are pulled out of Job's life. You know, it's one of the most depressing stories. When you read that passage in Job, it's so depressing. I don't know if you ever read the book, A Series of Unfortunate Events, but this is a series of unfortunate events on steroids, I think. <laughs> the, the bad news messages just keep coming in. First of all, it, it tells us there that his oxen are taken by the enemy. Then his donkeys are decimated. And then word comes that all his sheep have been killed by an electric storm. And then right after that comes the news that his great herd of camels, and in the Middle East, wealth is measured in the number of camels that you have. My, I have an interesting aunt. Her name is Betty Jean. We call her BJ. But she's lived her entire life in northern Kenya, and she keeps camels. She's a, a, a camel vet. And she travels around with this group of people. But she can attest to the fact that camels is currency. When you have a lot of camels, people look at you as a very wealthy person. And so right here, the very source of wealth that um, Job had, what, what gave him status, was wiped out in a catastrophe. And then the worst comes. The heart-rending news that his seven sons three daughters were enjoying a meal together when a tornado hit and the house was demolished and they were all killed. And Job is just stunned. But at the end of chapter one, he's obviously taking it in stride because he says these words, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will return. The Lord gives the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, we sing that song. It used to be a fairly popular song. But I have often wondered, God, would I have been able to say that in the face of everything that Job faced? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. But even that's not the end. As you continue on through chapter 2, Satan is somewhat taken aback. And so he asks God to change the rules and he, and he petitions God and he says, if I strike his body, he will curse you. And so God gives him permission 
And Job is stricken with, a seri- with boils from the tip of his head to the bottom of his feet. And he hardly knows what to do. But he's determined to wait it out. And it was during this time that his wife, who apparently had stood by him up to this point, understandably succumbs to all the tragedy and loss. And she turns to him and says, are you still holding fast to your integrity? Why don't you just curse God and die? And so now Job is alone, but he's determined to be faithful. And he responds to his wife and he says, you speak as one who is foolish. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Hard to hear, hard to do, but it's true nonetheless. Job believed that whatever we receive from God, he can take away so we can praise him regardless of what happens in life. You know, I'll never forget the story that Corey Ten Boom shared, and I think Pastor Rob has shared it. And it's the whole idea of God giving us the grace. But she talked about her sister and how she so feared when they were in the concentration camp and they, and they, they both so feared death. But Corrie Ten Boom's sister told Corrie Ten Boom, you know, we don't need to worry about how we'll respond now. God will give you the ticket when it's time to get on the train. In other words, a lot of times we don't think we have the grace to handle a situation now. But as we are walking in obedience to the Lord day by day, when those situations come, God gives us that grace. God gives us the ticket to handle that situation in the right time. And obviously Job had that abiding trust in God because he was able to say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, things happen to us that we don't understand. I know if I asked everyone to share, there would be just some amazing and heartbreaking stories, I'm sure, that would be told. Stories of unjust, unfair. And we're clueless. God, why would you allow that? The question is, are we able to keep faith? Are we able to, by faith, keep the perspective of Job? that God is still in control. He gives, he takes away. We just need to keep blessing him and trusting him. Head on over to the next slide there. Here we come now to the great bulk of the book of Job, chapter 3 through verse through chapter 37. And this is when his friends come. In chapter 2, verse 11, now when Job's three friends heard all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. I'm sure you guys all remember the junior high joke. Who's the shortest man in the Bible? Bildad, the Shuhite, right? He was just a... I learned that in junior high, so it's still sticking in my mind. Um, I just heard a cricket go off. Was that how bad my joke was? <laughs> anyway, so they come, and from chapter 3 through 37, um, we have this discourse between Job's friends and Job. And so now we're not looking at just Job, we're looking at the controversy that he's having with his three friends, and the discourse occupies the bulk of the book. And we see that from their very human point of view, they are attempting to answer this question. Why do do senseless tragedies afflict men? And the major part of this book is written beautifully in poetic language, and it records the attempts of these men to come to an answer. And you'll find as you read through these chapters, all their answers are really the same. The answer to the question of Job's problems is he must have been 
in sin. He must have committed some awful sin that God would bring this judgment on him. And when you read through it, you realize not everything they say is totally wrong. There are certainly tragic events. There are catastrophes. There are heartaches. There's pain. There's suffering that does occur because of our sin, as a, as a, as a consequence of our sin. But the problem with his friends' arguments was in their dogmaticism. That this is the only explanation for, the, for suffering. Their response was, if an individual is suffering, it must be because there is something wrong in his life. And remember in the New Testament, the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned that this person is sick? You know, they just had that mentality in their mind. But that's not always the case. And, and the book brings us to the place of understanding that. And so that's on one side of the argument. On the other, Job is responding. And at first he receives, then he becomes slightly irritated. And finally, he starts becoming angry and sarcastic. And there are some choice one-liners that Job has one point, he says, I'm sure you alone are the people. Wisdom is going to die with you. <laughs> you've got all the problems. I mean, sorry, you've got all the answers. You've solved all the problems. You know everything, so there's no use talking anymore. And even though Job himself is not speaking truth all the time, what we see about Job in this is that he is, he is being totally honest completely honest. He's confused about what's happening to him. He's confused and bewildered about God. He's puzzled. And he simply is blurting out his thoughts as we read them. And there are some wonderful verses that emerge from this discourse by Job. He's stripped to his very soul, and he cries out again and again with some of the deepest expressions of the human heart. In chapter 9, I'll read through some of these, he says of God, For he, speaking of God, is not a man that, as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. So we see that that is the heart and the cry of someone that recognizes that God is higher and greater and, and richer and holier than a man, and man can't reach him. It is the cry for a mediator to come between him and God. In chapter 14 comes another expression of his faithful heart. He says, if a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my release should come. In other words, he's saying, if I knew that after I die, I would live again, I would gladly wait until that time to argue my case before God. In chapter 16, Job cries out, even now, Behold, my witness is in heaven that he vouches for me on high. Earlier he had cried out for a mediator, someone to step in. Now, in desperation, he says, If any cause of mine is going to be fairly presented before God, it's God that has to do it. In chapter 19, there's another distressed cry. He says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were graven in rock forever. You know, Job didn't realize that this book would become part of Holy Scriptures and we'd be reading it 4,000 years later. And then that prayer, the most beautiful prayer, was fulfilled. And a ray of light shines in the darkness of Job's life comes to the place where he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, then my flesh, I will see God. So here, just an incredible uh, testament of faith. He didn't understand anything that was going on. He didn't have any of the promises of Scripture that we have, but he knew God. He had faith in God. And he knew that his Redeemer, he didn't know about the Messiah, he didn't know about the Christ, but he knew that somehow in God's plan, he would live eternally with God. And so out of the dark, deep distress of this man comes 
these cries, and they find their fulfillment in who? In Jesus Christ. Because Jesus came to be the mediator. He came to give assurance that man will live again. He came to stand between man and God. And he came to stand in the flesh upon the earth that man might see him face to face. And so that's in chapters 3 through 31. And in chapters 32 through 37, all of these friends, after each of them have given three arguments, and Job has responded to each three times, um, another man comes in. His name is Elihu. And he's a young man. And he's different than the other three. He comes in and he says, you guys are all wrong. You friends of Job, you're wrong because you accuse him and he hasn't done anything wrong. But then he accuses Job. He says Job is wrong because he blames, he's blaming God for his difficulty. So he's accusing God in order to exonerate himself. And so Elihu is kind of this interesting character who is pointing, pointing out the weaknesses in both parties, but he himself doesn't have any positive answers to any of their questions or to the question of Job's misery. And so in this passage, we see this fourth lesson, and that is Job throughout this process is continuing to trust God. He didn't understand, but he kept trusting He had such a great faith that he could honestly say, though he will slay me, yet I will hope in him. He had such great faith that he could say, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth after my skin has been destroyed, and I will see God. He knew that if he died, he would see the Lord again. Knowing that the Lord would raise his body to be with his spirit. Death would not be the end for Job. And neither is it for us. It's only the beginning for those who trust in Jesus. I read a a passage from a, a devotional. And this particular quote is from a man named Macduff. And he says, How it would take the sting from many a goading trial to see what Job saw in his hour of aggravated woe when every earthly hope lay prostrate at his feet. No hand but the divine. He saw that the hand behind the gleaming swords of the Sabian. He saw it behind the lightning flash. He saw it giving wings to the careening tempest. He saw it in the awful silence of his rifled home. The Lord gave. The Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then he ends by saying, Thus seeing God in everything, his faith reached its climax when this powerful prince of of the desert, seated on his bed of ashes, could say, Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. What's our reaction when the difficulty we have doesn't seem to end? Do we keep trusting? I know I was put to the test last year. I was constantly being reminded to keep trusting. I mean, I've given my life to ministry. I should know better than anyone what what scriptures say. And to keep applying these words to myself, I know was, was difficult. But there were times I didn't want to trust anymore. There were times I wanted to give up. And I'm sure that you've had those times in your life as well. But the point, the message that we see here is that in spite of not knowing, in all the debate, there were no answers. But Job kept certain things in mind. He, he kept his hope in him, and he knew that his Redeemer lived. At the end of the day, he was going to be with Jesus. The last few verses, uh, sorry, chapters, we find the Lord's answer. And it's interesting. Again, turn in your Bible to chapter 38. All of a sudden, God speaks. 
And in a sense, he finally steps into this conversation and he says, Job, do you want to debate? You've been saying you want answers. You've been saying that I'm hiding the answers from you. Do you want to debate your case? And so begins chapter 38. And God opens by saying, Who is this who darkens counsel? By words without knowledge. Now notice he's he's speaking to Job here. Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you. And you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstones? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And he goes on and on. But the beginning question, where were you when the foundations of the world were laid? That kind of puts to death any conversation, doesn't it? <laughs> and over the next two chapters, Job, God is taking Job on a tour of nature, so to speak. And he's asking Job question after question, a total of 40 questions about Job's ability to, to deal with these kinds of things in nature. And gradually in these, in these last three chapters, God is drawing a picture of the vast, complicated, intricately intertwined universe which God is orchestrating. And he's holding together. And ultimately, he's accomplishing his will in. And it's something no human mind can begin to comprehend. Nonetheless, even be a part of of, uh, ruling. And at the end of this overwhelming display of the wisdom of God, Job falls down on his face. and And Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do everything. And no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I do not understand, things too wonderfully, wonderful which I do not know. Listen and let me speak. You said I will question you and you will answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. You know, at the end of hearing all of that, Job is simply overwhelmed by the vast might and wisdom and majesty of God, and he falls on his face, and he repents, and he learns the lesson that God wants him to learn. And what is that lesson? The essential argument that God is teaching us through the book of Job is that life is sometimes too complicated for simple answers. And you know, sometimes we demand that God come up with a simple answer that we can understand to these complicated problems. And what are we doing? We're asking him to do more than we are able to understand ourselves. God can certainly give the answer but we can't understand it. God is awesome in his ability to balance the universe, the creation, humanity, to accomplish his will. And if we see that, then we must trust God to work out the complicated problems that we don't have answers to. The last 10 verses of Job is a beautiful picture of the tender mercies of God towards Job. God asks Job to pray for his friends so that they would be forgiven, which he does. And then God blesses Job and restores his wealth. And we see that Job got twice as much as he had before. Every livestock animal that he had, he got twice as much. And then he had his seven sons and three daughters in heaven, and he got seven sons and three daughters again on earth. And 
The last verse of the scripture says, And Job died an old man full of days. He was blessed and he was happy. And so as we come to the conclusion of this book, it's a difficult book to understand. And remember that Job himself never got an answer from God that we know of. He never understood why he suffered so much loss in his family. He never understood why he suffered his health problems, why he lost friends. And we may not understand what's happening to us. And I think the important question that we ask is not why, God, but the important question that we would ask is what? What are you trying to teach me? And for us, the important thing is that God knows what he's doing, and we just need to simply trust sometimes. There are times when God does not adequately explain life to us. There are times when we must trust that not all suffering is because we are bad, but it can also be our suffering is the source of some final but unforeseen good. It might be a good that we never see in our lifetime. Romans 8:28 says we know that in everything God works for good with those who love him who are called according to his purpose. What an amazing thought. That God can use good for his purposes, but he can also use evil for his purposes. That's pretty amazing. It's not something we want to hear all the time, especially in the direct aftermath of something hard that's happened to us. But it's important that we know that because it's going to help us get through that hard time. All things work together for good. Again, as I opened, I, I shared with you how just everything that I'd personally gone through last year There were a lot of times I was asking myself, why? What have I done wrong, God? And I can't say that I have answers to all those questions, even though I want them. But I have come to the place of going back to the promises of Scripture and saying, God, you promised back here in Isaiah chapter 58, verse 10, that you would do a work. You promised in your word that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You promised that you will be with us even to the ends of the world. And I'm just going to have to simply trust in those promises. And likely there are people here tonight and you have those similar questions in in your life, whether it's a bereavement or something's happened in your life and it's rocked you. It's rocked your spiritual life. It's really made you question God. Well, if there's any book in the Bible that would help you make sense of what you're going through, it would be the book of Job. But understand that even at the end of the book of Job, Job didn't get an answer. (laughs) He simply had to trust the Lord. And that's where God is calling us to, to trust him. Amen? Amen. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this evening. Thank you for the book of Job. Thank you for the deep and profound truth that you teach us through it. It's not a truth that we love to hear, certainly. We would rather have answers, Lord. But, Lord, you call us to be men and women who walk by faith and not by sight. And it's many times when we are walking in the dark, when it, going through something like, a, like what Job went through, and we want answers, and you're, you're just saying, trust me. Trust what I've said in my word to you. Trust what I'm speaking to you through the Holy Spirit.
And so, Lord, whoever it is in this room that is at that very place, Lord, I pray that you would give them that grace right now to trust. That you would put their mind and their heart at peace. To be able to know, though I don't know the answer, I've put my trust in a good God who loves me. A good God who will accomplish his will on earth as it is in heaven. A good God who has said all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And so, Lord, whoever, is, whoever that person is here tonight, just reach out to them. Make yourself real to them. Let them know, Lord, that you are present in the midst of their struggle and that you will give them the grace to pass through. We glorify you, Lord, this evening. We give you the rest of this weekend. Have your way, Lord, in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.